Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hello, thanks for joining us on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we come to you with a different in-depth discussion with creative Mississippians. We talk to visual artists, musicians, photographers, craftspeople, and people that help promote the arts in their community. Today we're going to be talking about music, composition, and lots of other topics with our guest, Dr. Igor Ivanik. He is a member of the Mississippi Arts Commission's roster, artist roster. He is a composer, a musician, and a speaker, and he is here with us today. Igor, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me here. You've been on our artist part of our artist roster for a number of years, and you've been in the in the Jackson metro area for a while. But for people who aren't familiar with your work, maybe you could just kind of give us an overview of your work as a musician and a composer. So, Larry, I'm uh, originally from Poland. I got to, to Mississippi about seven years ago, and um, my training was as a music composer um, in the classical music world. But, but I always was also looking you know, into, into different worlds, the uh, world of Latin music, other, other world music traditions, Indian music. And at the same time, uh, I was always pursuing my love uh, for piano. And so I was kind of pianist composer from that perspective. And you mentioned my other aspect of my work, which is, which is actually in music, on the intersection of music and well-being, um, basically that that part that our western science just right now is, is is trying to you know wrap its head around which is kind of an, an exciting time um, to be uh, a part of it and because of that um, i i can also call myself a speaker because because i oftentimes speak to people teach people about um, the relationship of music and uh, and well-being well let, let's go back to the beginning just a little bit so you grew up in poland and and you you've had so many different kind of tributaries to your music musical world how did it first get started did you have musicians in your family in your community what what drew you to it initially you know what it's, it's a funny thing uh, i um, so the closest person to a musician in my family is my paternal grandmother who used to uh, cook at the music school <laughs> but that's that's basically it otherwise no my my parents are not at all uh, music related however early on i i felt the need for having music in my life when i at about the age of eight or nine, I started taking ballet classes. And, you know, I remember very vividly when we took ballet, the room in which we're, which we're practicing, there was an old theater hall. There was a stage, and on the right side of that stage, there was a grand piano. And I remember very clearly at the end, uh, or in the middle of when we were having a little bit of a rest, of a break, I would always go to that piano and... You know, at that time I was very timid. I didn't know how to play, so I would not even dare to to uh, to try to pluck a couple of notes. I would just sit underneath the piano. I would sit underneath this huge instrument and actually smell it. 
so it's funny because because I went into music in a way through through um, the sense of smell. I smelled this huge piece of wood, and probably I've been also smelling a lot of glue there. <laughs> so maybe I was getting I have no idea. But I remember clearly as a little kid thinking to myself, "Wow, this is such an immense, amazing instrument. I want to learn how to play it by sitting underneath and smelling." Then afterwards. Um, one of my classmates started playing the piano and she would play in our music classes. And at that time, you know, uh, I mistake, I, I did mistake it for falling in love with her, but I actually was falling in love with music. And then I came back, told my parents, listen, guys, you need to just get me a piano. So uh, it was at that time it was Poland right after the transition from out of communism. My father was working in one of the factories. They got me a a, piano, a factory piano that was filled with um, broken vodka bottles, and <laughs> that's how my journey began. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that was that that very basic story, the, the very beginning. Somehow, I did not take into consideration the fact that at birth I had a cerebral hemorrhage, which left my right hand totally not serviceable, meaning that I couldn't move my fingers on my right hand. This is from very young. Yes, Did yes, you say, just from literally from birth. That happened from birth. From birth okay. Right. That my mother fainted. I was still inside, and I, they couldn't pull me out, and I was losing air, basically. Oh, okay. And that's where, where cerebral hemorrhage happened. But I don't know. I, I just felt such a strong need for music in my life, and I really wanted to learn how to play the piano. That the fact that I really half of my body was not uh, ready for playing the piano did not discourage me in the least. And that's honestly how I turned very early into composite to composition. I never thought of me being a composer. You know, I never even at that time heard of of composition. Being a composer is a is a viable um, job of, of a sort. I just needed music for myself to play because I had my limitation. My right hand didn't move properly, so I need I needed to create music that did most of what it needed to do in the left hand, and that's how I started playing, and that's how I started also composing for early on. Also, at the same time I was playing, you know, I was playing piano, I was also playing uh, electric guitar. In fact, now I'm in Mississippi, you know, I was at the time I was playing a lot of Mississippi blues. Um, then also Texan blues and, and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, things like this. And I remember very clearly people would come to me and tell me, oh, okay, so you play piano and you play the guitar. So that means your parents want you to play the piano and you want to play the guitar, right? That's how it is. So at some point I resolved, okay, I'm dropping the guitar. I will show them this is not the case. <laughs> so anyway, I was I was a strange little kid. So basically, I was self-taught. I would get my hand on as many music books as I as I could in Polish, in English. Once I started learning English, and just you know try to devour as much as possible. And then I started my officially my music studies when I when I came to the United States in. Uh, in 2000. So I was self-taught until 2000. Because in Poland, I mean, in a lot of uh, so-called Eastern European former Soviet Union uh, related countries, there is this very good musical system of musical training, but you have to enter when you are seven. And if you're out, if you don't enter uh, at the time when you're seven, you're out. You Basically, there's just no way to get in. So I was, I was the, the outcast. So you were a child when Poland was making that transition out of, you know, the, the, the kind of closed society open. Was there new music coming into Poland? Were there new things that like ra stuff on radio and stuff that was kind of popping up that hadn't been there before? Definitely. I mean, uh, yes, I remember clearly 
pretty much radio was was the only thing. And then slowly, early 90s, uh, cassettes started, uh, cassettes, oftentimes bootlegged cassettes from, from outside started coming. So I have two vivid memories uh, from that time. One vivid memory is as I was listening to the radio, and I clearly remember I was listening to the second piano concerto of Bella Bartok, and my mom came into the kitchen as I was listening and asked me, Igor, what noise are you listening to? <laughs> but that, so we started then getting that, that music uh, that was out of, out of the mainstream. At the same time, music that from other parts of the world started coming in. And I have a very vivid memory of going to, a, to the marketplace, just literally open market where they were selling anything from used cars, car parts to cassettes. And, and just looking through the cassettes, and I saw a cassette with a picture of somebody sitting on the floor in a beautiful oriental uh, outfit. And he also had huge black glasses. Later on, I found out he was blind. But basically, he was a blind sitar player from India. And at the time, for a kid growing up in Poland who's never seen anything outside of, of what social realism was presenting to us, that, that, that picture of this man in this beautiful florid dress with this amazing instrument, I just needed to pick up that cassette. And you know, that's how I started listening also to Indian classical music, which was wow. you know, kind of bizarre at the time. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Dr. Igor Ivanik. He's a musician and a composer based in central Mississippi, and he's also a member of the Arts Commission's Artist Roster. So tell me about your, so your transition, you came, did you come to U.S. for college? And that was the point when you kind of transitioned to composition, maybe? So as I, as I mentioned, Larry, I, composition was something that I was just doing for myself because I just needed it. But um, um, so it was pure utility. And uh, at some point in high school, I sent, um, sent a recorded portfolio of, of music to Berkeley College of Music. And I got a scholarship there. So then I decided, you know, okay, so then I'm going to go to U.S. and study music officially because I knew in Poland I was not able to study. And, and that's, that's how I came to the United States in, in early 2001, to Boston, actually. And I, and I did all my training in Boston. And, and I know Berkeley has many streams, you know, jazz and other things that they do there. Were you on kind of a more contemporary classical track or what? What, what was your focus at, when you first that started? That time at Berkeley, I was actually on, on more of a, a jazz stream. In, in fact, I was literally, classical music was very important to me, but at, at that time, jazz as well uh, was playing a big part of my life. At that time, I didn't see the, that connection, but actually I was drawn to a particular type of jazz music, so-called modal jazz. Modal jazz, which is based on fixed scales, which and as a concept is actually based on actual Indian classical music a lot. So kind of this was a, a, a subtle hint to, to me also pointing that, you know, that, that this other musical journey was, was, was coming at some point later in my life. But yeah, uh, so initially I was, my, my focus uh, at Berkeley was jazz. Then when I moved to Boston Conservatory, it was classical composition. And then I ended up pursuing classical composition and at the same time on the side piano throughout my studies. And so at that point when you're in school, you're seeing yourself, I'm going to be uh, a contemporary classical composer or what, what was your kind of like, what were your goals looking out back then? I, I mean, sometimes I'm reflecting on what were my goals because one of the goals was definitely to learn as much as I could. I, I just felt that um, thirst, that, that, that craving for knowledge. So I, I wanted, first of all, let's say from the piano perspective, it was try to push myself as far as I can to see 
what I can do with five fingers in a territory where normally 10 fingers are the, the standard, right? So there was a lot of interesting discoveries there. For example, I, I ended up specializing in arranging music from uh, piano music from the written for, for 10 fingers into five fingers. Uh, and, 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 and the challenge was to try to make it sound as similar as possible so that human ear is not feeling that something is missing. And that was a beautiful lesson of composition right there, right? Of how to create the illusion. Because oftentimes music it is an illu is, you know, illusion that is trying to pull out a certain emotion from you. On the other hand, I always felt that music for me personally was a, was a means of probing the mystery of life. To be very honest, I would feel that I felt that music was in a way a spiritual pursuit for me. I wanted to find out the kind of deeper meaning of life through music. And, you know, when you think about it, think about the Latin root word of, of to sing, for example, cantare in Latin you know, and in many, in many Western uh, languages is to sing. And actually, initially, that word meant to produce magic. So to make music meant to produce magic when we look at the at the root of the word so so i was kind of feeling that there's something in that music more than just that on one hand it obviously there's an entertainment aspect of it on the other hand there's a kind of deeper cerebral study but i was also kind of digging and digging and digging and so other than composing other than playing um, i was also kind of trying to read a lot about what people were thinking about music what people were writing about music what was the kind of deeper meaning so in a way, my musical goals were, were kind of a little off the, <laughs> off the usual grid. Well, we've been talking a lot about music. Let's hear some. You've brought some music, uh, some, some samples of your work uh, with us today. First track I have is, it's, I don't know if this is the official name, but Salsa and Indian Music is the, is the track you gave me to put in here. So tell us a little about what we're going to hear now. Well, in this track, I decided to open with it because it kind of gives a, an overview of the various mix-up of styles um, and of influences. As I mentioned at some point, I was also quite interested in and intrigued by Latin music, uh, by, by Afro-Cuban music, by its rhythms. And, but I also have uh, had a very deep, long-standing relationship with Indian classical music. And so here, in that track, we are actually going to um, hear me playing in the setting which is a which would be an indian classical setting with me playing the uh, the reed organ um so called the harmonium and um, being accompanied by a, um, by a tabla player uh, tabla is a is an indian drum kind of spelled like table just with a instead of e at the end but as we are playing i'm also exploring in that in that particular um, excerpt i'm exploring uh, afro-cuban um, rhythms uh, which we would generally refer to as salsa rhythms. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. 
We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Dr. Igor Ivanik. He is a musician, a composer, and he's a member of the Arts Commission's Artist Roster. So you told us the story of how you initially found Indian music, you know, in, in a stall at a, at a sale, outdoor kind of, what would you call it, just market sale. So how did you develop? I mean, I've seen the videos of you playing the harmonium online. You definitely have built some great musical ability with that instrument. So how did you go from just finding it to kind of, you know, learning that music? Because this is totally separate from, I guess, what you did in Berkeley and, and, and elsewhere, right? Absolutely. In fact, you know, it was so separate and so different that even though I was I was really attracted to it for a very long time, I would stay, try to stay away from this music as much as I could because I always felt, you know, such a deep ocean to jump into. And I have not been trained from day one in, in, in this tradition. So I felt like, okay, let me stay away from it. But then at some point I realized, you know, I only have one life. So let me, <laughs> let's, let's explore. So the way I started exploring it was from purely compositional perspective. As a composer, I would sit down and listen to the music, uh, music that I particularly love and try to write it down just to try to write it down to find to understand how it is made how, how what ingredients it's made out of and so i for a long time i would just do this i would not i would not participate in it so to speak i would not play it myself then when i w- when i was living in boston and doing my doctorate at boston university i was also teaching at uh, at mit at the music department there and over there at MIT, uh, at the time, George Ruckert was, was teaching. And George Ruckert is a, one of the preeminent Western musicians who is an authority on, on uh, Indian classical music. And he told me, hey, you know, I have this um, reed organ sitting and gathering dust in my office. Would you want to try it, you know, and see what you can do with it? <laughs> so this, was, this felt like an, a green light, an invitation that I should actually, that I should actually do something with it. In, in real life. And that's, that's when I started. And uh, so I started my usual way. So I, you know, surrounded myself with all possible books on Indian classical music and just learned all the pieces that were in these books. At the same time, I was already here living in Mississippi. So I organized a Thursday night, open my living room uh, to people and people were coming and I would basically introduce them to the music, introduce them to one uh, recording of that music at a time but me, myself, played that, that very recording from the beginning to the end on, on, on my instrument and kind of and explained the music to them a little bit. And this was a great, you know, this was a great deadline for me because we were doing it every week. So on a, on a weekly basis, I had to just learn a new recording and, and, and this way deepen my, my understanding. And over time, I started interacting with, um, with Indian musicians, some fantastic musicians, Grammy Award winning uh, Indian violinist, Kalaramnath. Uh, I've been arranging uh, music for her because I ended up being that that bridge between Western music and Indian music, kind of understanding both both worlds. Um, and and I've been studying I've been studying the harmonium, the instrument, also uh, with with an eminent musician in Mumbai. So over time, yeah, I just I just realized that I need to as much as possible um, just jump into the ocean. And and if I even though even if I may start uh, drowning, you know, I just I just will learn to swim in it. And that's that was that was that. So from the initial impulse of hearing that tape in the early 90s and then listening to the music, but not really participating, it took some time. 
before actually I started fully participating. Maybe you could, for people who aren't as familiar with Indian classical music, you could talk a little bit about the differences between Western music and Indian classical music. Absolutely. In fact, I think this would be great so that when the listeners get to listen some further samples, they'll be kind of knowing what to, what to listen for, how to how to interact with it. So first of all, you know, in our music, we have so-called harmony, which is which is the background, right? The, the chords that are changing and that are moving constantly. That concept is totally uh, not present in Indian classical music. In, at the background, there is an instrument called the, har- uh, the tanpura. Uh, the tanpura is basically a piece of pumpkin, a beautifully carved piece of pumpkin uh, with a long uh, lute-like neck and with four strings. And it plays that background, background sound that doesn't change from the beginning to the end of the uh, piece. That basically has two reasons for being. One reason is it gives the so-called tonic note, right? That, um, against which every, every musical note, every musical event is, is, is creating either tension or relaxation. But the other reason for it being there is it immediately focuses our mind. So the mind of the listener is being immediately focused on that sound and therefore kind of drawn in to um, that world. So I would like to just play you a short clip of that of the tantra sound by itself so that you see uh, for yourself how it sounds. All right, very good. And then you had another sample for us to listen to as well. Yes, then, so, so there is that musical background, um, the tantra. And then I just wanted to briefly introduce the concept of rhythm in, in Indian classical music. Concept of rhythm in Indian classical music is fascinating. I mean, it is so, so complex, yet, yet so math- mathematically lucid at the same time, and yet exciting. So, um, the piece that you are going to uh, to hear not too long from now will be in the rhythmical cycle of 10 of 10 counts so all all indian music happens in regular cycles that means that the rhythm will always come back to the point of beginning that um, there is a cyclical movement in the rhythm whether it's the rhythm of 14 beats 15 beats 16 beats, 7 beats, doesn't matter. But you always have that beginning and an end and beginning again. And that's what I wanted you to hear uh, in that next musical sample where on the, the tabla player, so the, the, the drummer, a beautiful um, tabla player, his name is Taivat, Taivat Mehta from, from Mumbai. And so there he's playing that rhythmical cycle of 10 and I'm counting so that you understand where's one, where's 10 and how it, how it recurs. And you know, thinking from a more from a different perspective, that that rhythmical cycle is in a way very akin to the cycle of life, the cycle of day and night, the cycle of seven-day period, which we call a week, or twenty-four-hour period, which we call the day. So there's that beautiful recurrence that creates tension and then creates resolution. And that these two things I wanted to share with listeners because these two things are quite different uh, from how we perceive music in the West.
we just heard a musical sample from Dr. Igor Ivanik and his uh, partner on the tabla, and we're talking with him. He is here on the Arts Hour today. Igor is a composer, a musician, and a member of the artist roster. So we've heard about your kind of time in the academy, learning kind of the Western tradition, and then your own kind of pursuit of the Indian music, classical tradition. So how did you start bringing these very two different groups together in your own work? For me, there's only music, good music and bad music. I mean, I, I don't really think that, okay, this is Western classical, this is Indian classical. Of course, I mean, I understand that they function there, but for me, especially as a composer, you know, you always try to look for similarities. You always try to, to try to break the music down to such small units where you really understand what is it made out of. And then you start seeing similarities between styles, right? Um, then you start just different approaches to the same matter because the matter is here sound, right? The matter is frequency, vibration. If we think about what really sound is, look, if I, if I do this, if I clap my hands right now, this is not yet sound, this is rhythm, right? Because it is too slow for our mind to perceive it as sound. But if I keep on speeding it up, and I speed up and speed up, of course, and I go beyond, you know, the speed at which I can, I can flap, the ear starts getting confused. There's just too many events happening, and then the ear starts understanding this rhythm as sound. So really, rhythm and sound is, is the same phenomenon, just rhythm is slower, and sound is much faster. And that, again, that, that, that building block is the same, whether it's Indian classical music, salsa music, Afro-Cuban music, Western classical, doesn't matter. Uh, pop, doesn't matter. For, from that perspective, I never felt like it was difficult for me to, um, you know, to, to find these connections. Because in a way, when you are training as a composer, you're training to understand how music is, what music is made out of and to find as many of these connections as possible. So this was kind of just, just almost like breathing for me. And, you know, one thing I, I as, as we are talking about uh, these different musics and as we we're talking about Indian music, one thing, one other thing I might bring in here that might be um, interesting to listeners. In, in that musical tradition, there's a phenomenon that we don't really have anymore much in our Western music, that perception that certain music is good for certain time of the day or night that it evokes certain emotions that will be best suited for that part of the day or that part of the night. Think about it this way. Culturally, we have a, a certain, we would have a bias, we would have a cultural bias if, let's say, the organist started playing a funeral march at a wedding. We would know it's inappropriate, right? So for the Indian musician, it will be playing, playing a certain scale or playing a certain raga, uh, as, they, as they call it, in the morning, where it's particularly an evening composition would be very out of place. So this is just an, 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 interesting, an interesting aspect that, that we in the West a little bit lost touch with, even though when you look at music, at Western music from uh, medieval times, for example, the, the prayers uh, of, of the medieval monks that were, uh, that were going on around the clock 24 hours, there were certain musical modes for these prayers that were only to be done in the evening or to be done in the morning. But over time, we kind of lost, we lost touch a little bit with that, with that aspect of musicality. Well, let's take another quick music break. Uh, we've got another sample here, that are, another sample of your music. Uh, tell us about what we're going to hear next. That will be a, a composition in the rhythmical cycle of 10. So what, we, what you just heard not too long ago, 10 beats recurring. This is, a, again, me and the same and tabla player, Dhaivat. 
and 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 the tanpura, the the background drone in uh, in the in the background. So only three instruments interacting, and you will hear as the music is gradually speeding up. It starts in a in a quite a relaxed tempo, and then gradually it starts speeding up, speeding up, and as it culminates, there is a certain cadence. And when we talk about cadence, you know, in in the Western music, we mean certain combination of chords that really make us feel that we have arrived. And as I mentioned to you earlier, since there's no chords in, in Indian music, the way they make, they create that, that anticipation, that cadence, is actually through a device called Tihai, where they repeat a similar musical phrase three times, similar rhythmical, rhythmical uh, phrase three times, and then it has to finish on the first beat. And that's when, when we really know we have arrived, and that's what you'll be able to, to hear in that excerpt. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour for our final segment. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Dr. Igor Ivanik. He is a musician, a composer, and he's a member of the Arts Commission's Artist Roster. So, Igor, you had, if it wasn't enough that you were seriously into the world of of Indian classical music and Western classical music, you've also, over the years, developed an interest in kind of the... uh, the music of the Caribbean, the Afro-Cuban, and, and salsa in and, and South America and that. Tell us about that interest and maybe how it gets into the river of, of all the music that you do. <laughs> you know, um, Larry, this part is, uh, yeah, I guess that, that, will, that will be one for my next life, so to speak. But um, because I always felt like, you know, if both of my, uh, both of my hands were in, in total working order, that probably my alternate life career would be as a salsa uh, pianist. I always felt it is extremely fun and and uh, just 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 plain fun. What can I say? So I oftentimes actually, you know, when I'm tired of working on on whatever Indian or Western music, and I just want to clear my mind, I just sit at the piano and, and play and play salsa. And I also, at some point, I used to um, I used to dance quite a bit of uh, of salsa music. This way, I actually internalized all the rhythms into my body. You know, um, this was a wonderful way to. Uh, and when I when I came to Mississippi, I at the salsa Mississippi and at the local uh, salsa club, I used to I used to uh, do musicality workshops for dancers where I would play the piano, I would play the congas, and kind of teach them the rhythms. They would be dancing to it. So you know, just a, just a lot of fun. What can I say? And and wonderful rhythmical intricacy in a totally different vein from Indian music or everything that we talked about. Yeah, just like kind of kick back kind of thing, you know, not yeah. think about it and just have fun. Yeah, it definitely have fun. I mean, you know, when you when you have to make this music, there's a lot of a lot of thinking that has to go into it. Right. Yes, you're right. <laughs> but definitely the intricacies of it is it, it's yeah. just as intricate in its, in its own way. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's pe- technique, primarily music for social 
gathering. So a lot of times it's music for dancing, but it, it, you know, it has a fantastic, uh, fantastic life of its own as, as, just, as just musical art. Well, we, we, you've hinted at this a little bit, but we, we want to kind of go into your, the next section, which your, your work now is as, as a speaker and as a presenter in, in kind of making these ties between, you've been talking a lot about how music is, is more than just, you know, entertainment. It's, it has, it has deeper, deeper meaning and deeper importance to us. So talk about how you've, how you've brought those ideas into, you know, where they, where, where their origins are in your thinking and, and how you've moved forward with the, the projects you're working on now. Hmm. Yes. Larry, thanks for asking this. This is actually kind of a big part of my life. And uh, as I mentioned, it, it slowly has been creeping into my life for many, many years because I always felt there's something more to music than just entertainment or just cerebral, you know, academic study. And uh, and that part that I was always looking for was the connection between music and uh, and human emotional well-being. And on my own, I've been researching this this topic quite a big bit. In fact, the first time I came to United States, which was about I believe '96 or '98, uh, for a summer program at Berkeley, I remember clearly buying a book on that very topic, and I still have this book on my shelf um, to this day. So that topic was actually very well. Um, documented long, long ago, and it was documented in different cultures. It was particularly well documented on paper, in, in books, in uh, the Indian culture, in the Chinese culture, and other places as well, just maybe to a little lesser extent. But So my study started there. But uh, see, when you think about music, and when you think about um, human well-being, first of all, music and how it is related to human breathing, because breath uh, will be that, that the way in which we can really hack the nervous system. See, for example, actors use it a lot, right? Actors, in order to create a certain feeling of a certain emotion, in order to act a certain emotion, they change the breath pattern, right? That, that uh, in which they breathe so that that emotion can immediately, so to speak, invade their body and they can be authentic. Now, the way you do it, you change it by changing the rhythm of your breathing. That's where music comes extremely helpful. From that perspective, uh, it's, it's just a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just such a, such an amazing uh, thing by itself. If you think about that, the sound resonates the whole human body, and actually, uh, the sound is to our nervous system what food is to the body. So actually, uh, Western science has recently confirmed is that that sound charges the neocortex, the, um, the very important part of our brain. So that's why the connection between sound and well-being is so just so closely linked. I don't want to get into um, too much of, um, of you know, biology, but just to tell you briefly, to our eardrums, there is a certain nerve called vagus nerve that is connected directly to our eardrums and starts starts at the brain, and then it just dangles down the body and be pretty much touches every single internal organ in the body, except for very few organs, literally touches pretty much everything. And because it is attached to the eardrums, it actually, so with a proper um, use of music, with a proper use of, of rhythm, with a proper use of just applying sound as a medicine, so to speak, you can very quickly 
change the breathing rate. You can very quickly change the heart rate and actually the oscillations of the uh, of the brain, the the um, the brain waves oscillations. And all this has very solid scientific background right now. So. For those of you who are interested, you can definitely investigate it. And, and then that's that aspect of um, of music that that feels just just so profound, I would say. When you think from other aspect, you can say that okay, human minds differ, right? You and I will will have a different mind, will be thinking different, but in a way, human souls do not differ; they are made of the same thing. And music touches human being on that very deepest level. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Dr. Igor Ivanik. He is a musician, a composer, and a speaker, a presenter, and he is also a member of the Arts Commission's Artist Roster. So in terms of like the germination of this idea, it seems like a lot of things come out of your own personal experience. So I'm wondering, this is not just an academic kind of concept that you kind of came to. I'm curious about kind of your own personal awakening that maybe kind of drew you in this direction. Yes, definitely it doesn't feel like an academic concept, even though I must say that in 2018 there was a first uh, academic symposium on that topic, which actually I was a part of. So that part is slowly creeping into the academia and finding its, its, its ways there as well. In fact, when I was in academia, I would never share with people the fact that I was in, deeply interested in it because it felt like such an unacademic <laughs> concept. But but then, after I graduated from academia, I found other many other academics who were as interested and you know who were also kind of feeling like we, we, we were calling it you know we're 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 closet um, well-being <laughs> musical well-being <laughs> practitioners you know. And when I think, yeah, of course, it has a lot to do with my uh, with my own journey, but. Um, from day one, as I mentioned earlier, uh, since I, I was in a way at a, quite a disadvantage with, with how I was born with, you know, with cerebral hemorrhage, with not being able to do, use my right hand and yet being totally driven to, to, to play the piano and, and explore music as much as I could. So probably that constant checkpoint, that, that, that constant vulnerability that was, you know, that, that I was very aware of on daily basis because you know, 50% of me was not working optimally in, in, it, in the musical department as, as, as other people would. You can think of me as if, as if I, I wanted to be a runner, but was born with one leg, right? Kind of that was, that was, that could be the analogy. So that, I believe that from very early on got me started thinking about, uh, you know, maybe just beyond the way we normally perceive music. And also I noticed, you know, I was, I was a, uh, as a child, as a teenager, I was extremely nervous, so to speak, you know, or, or in, in before performances, I would be extremely nervous to such a level that, you know, I would be just, 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 just fully shaking. And I noticed that actually with, an, with a certain application of breath in relationship to music, with a certain application of rhythmical breath, I actually, uh, I managed to to just conquer that that aspect of uh, of who I was very successfully, and now of course many years later I would be reading you know about studies showing that literally let's say when we are in a in a moment of stress we are committing a a, a brain lobotomy of sort. It's a self-imposed cutting of part of the brain out uh, because part of the system shuts down, part of our cognition shuts down, part of our digestive reproductive system immune systems start shutting down when we are in that under that stress and then you realize that that actually you can help yourself immensely with 
with music, with rhythm, and with, with correct application of breath. That's why, that's why I felt like, okay, you know, this was a natural uh, pathway for me as well. So talk about how you've taken these ideas and kind of pushing them out there as a speaker, presenter. Uh, uh, I guess you do workshops, you do other things. Talk, talk about what this actually looks like. Yes, these days I present a lot of it in a format where, where people refer to me as a speaker. And it, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that I fall into the category of a speaker because I try to speak as little as possible. I try to actually do this, you know, um, do, do as much of the practice uh, as possible. So, so I'm always laughing that I'm a, a speaker who's the most reluctant to speak. Because I, I always feel that, you know, if, peop- if I have people there in the room or these days on, on Zoom, because these days obviously life happens a little differently, then if I give them the tools, if I give them that practice, if they actually connect their breath to a rhythm um, that I will teach them, if I manage to bring in certain sound frequencies uh, into their ears, so that, uh, which, which will help with what you, what you would call um, synchronizing the human physiology, because that's basically what happens. We, we start, when, when you do these practices and when you actually connect yourself to various uh, devices that will read your vital functions of the body, you all of a sudden, instead of seeing, you know, the graphs being jagged and being twisted and then not being regular, you all of a sudden start seeing incredible regularity of, of a sinusoid-like wave where different systems of the body start um, synchronizing. So the way, the way these workshops look like is I basically, first I correct the way people breathe because unfortunately about 90% of people all over the globe breathe incorrectly, which is amazing because if you think about that, breath is something that we all engage in at least 21,000 times every day. We should know how to do it well, right? But, but unfortunately, that's, that's actually not the case. So step one is this. After this is done, then we, uh, I teach people how to actually rhythmical um, breath control, which is basically allowing you to slow down the rate at which we are breathing. And you think about, you know, if you're breathing uh, a lot, it's, uh, and if you're breathing really fast, it, it is the same thing as if we are standing at a, uh, at a red light and having our car on, you know, on neutral, uh, having the gears on neutral, but constantly revving up the gas, constantly um, you know, pushing that, uh, that gas pedal. So that's, that's what oftentimes um, people end up, um, I mean, we all end up doing. That's why I feel that that knowledge, the ability to connect the breath to be more efficient, to make it more rhythmical and basically make it more efficient is extremely of just incredible use. So that's why in the last six years I, I came out with a series of workshops that I do. I try to, I try to make sure I, you know, I hit educators because I, I try to make sure that they learn how to do it so that they can then teach it to kids. Because, I, for example, I, I did this practice uh, for, for a number, uh, well, this might be for a year and a half or two, and before, right before COVID, in one of the retirement homes in, in Ridgeland. And there people were telling me, why didn't I learn this as a kid? Why, you know, 90-year-old people were telling me, why didn't, have I never learned this? Because it, they, they could just feel the difference. The difference was very apparent. That's why I'm, I'm trying to reach out to, uh, to educators. Meanwhile, at the same time, I'm, I'm just trying to reach out to workplace teams because just changing the way, the way people breathe which basically allows them to, um, to change the whole work environment. So for people that are interested in learning more about these workshops and the things that you offer, t- tell us a little bit about where they need to go and, and if you have anything upcoming that you'd like to mention. So basically the best place to, um, to find me um, will be that website 
Uh, it is uh, drigorspeaks.com, but the doctor is just dr, d-r-i-g-o-r speaks.com. Uh, and there, if you want to reach out directly to me, there is an email there. I'll be trying to respond as quickly as I can. So basically, that's the web website that talks about the connection between between music and, and human well-being. It goes a bit more into detail. And there you will see how, how these workshops are conducted. And again, these are workshops for educational groups of educators, workplace teams, and, as, and also for individuals. Igor, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere